This is Coda Radio, episode 317 for July 9th, 2018. Welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and its related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two great sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week, like that man up in the treehouse spying on the whole neighborhood like an awkward old man, it's Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Sisters up, Misa, the Chacha Pinks. Oh, good, good. I thought maybe you'd forgotten somehow about that. Well, Mr. Dominic, it's good to be with you today. I'm live from Keller, Texas, back down at Linux Academy in one of their recording booths right now. Although I have a feeling that everybody in the general area of the office can probably hear me because once I get on mic, I get loud. You know, I get big and loud. So I have a feeling everybody's listening to the show right now. We have a live audience. We have a lot to get into. We have a chat with Jerome from... from uh, Uno, which we mentioned wrong. last I love week. Fantastique. I'm sorry. <clears throat> yep. He'll come on and uh, tell us how wrong Mike is about stuff. and uh, Correct. And also crush our dreams. Crush our dreams about a future compiler. But then elate us with, the, with their accomplishments and what the project is doing. It's a great chat. Uh, that's coming up in a little bit. We just, we just got done recording that. But Mr. Dominic, we have, we have some feedback to get into, as we like to do things here on the show, an appropriate kind of way to warm us up. We got an email that came in. And I thought this was a good one from Doug. He says, I just went on a coder binge listening to the last three episodes today, and I like the way the show fluctuates between the fun and serious aspects of work and business. I also appreciate how Mike lays out his opinions in an unapologetic but respectful way. Keep up the good work. Here's my dilemma. See, he warms us up, and then he comes in with the hard-hitting questions. He says, my 10-year-old son has a strong interest in coding and computers. He's worked in Scratch on the Raspberry Pi but he quickly became bored with the limitations of that system. I've tried to introduce him to Python since it's been a reputation of being, since it has a reputation of being a beginner-friendly language. However, I simply don't know enough about coding to teach him anything useful. It's a classic, it's a classic example of the blind leading the blind. What he really wants is an IDE in language with a visual interface and syntax similar to the Scratch IDE, but with more versatility. The elementary school keeps recommending Swift, but my son has had a legit hatred for Apple because he can't open up their machine. So how does he know how they work? <laughs> Attaboy! He would prefer to continue to use Linux, but he's not opposed to Windows either. Oh. Oh. What are your thoughts and recommendations? Thanks for the show. What do you think, Mike? What can we do for Doug's kid? Your son is a wise and powerful Sith he will become. First of all, yeah, I don't know what shitty school he's going to. Listen to that boy. He knows He knows what he's talking about. That kid's Time got some good out. instincts, it's, first of all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> first of all, uh, Swift is never the answer. It's, all right. Now, I have a brother around the same age, 11 years old. So what oh. I've been doing with him is code.org, which Ooh. has actually Star Wars themed. And it has a bunch of other stuff for girls and boys. It has a... It's an interesting situation, Chris. They've partnered with a bunch of brands for. It's completely free, but they're like, kid, you know, popular kids things like they have Ray from Star Wars and Kylo Ren and uh, the new droid BB-8. 
but they also have like hmm. princesses and stuff like that. So there are coding challenges in either Python or JavaScript that you do right in your Chrome web browser. Really good, kind of the same same visual experience that you would get in a Scratch IDE. Now, if he's a little more advanced than that, there's also, of course, the great book on Amazon that's only about $15, Python for Kids. A lot of great introductory programming uh, challenges for kids in the Python programming language, which, of course, is a, a love of the Linux community. As long as it's not Rust, he's okay. I feel like I got off the rails there. <clears throat> well, it's all, it's all right. I feel like the, the core of it was good. And I think, uh, so we'll have a link in the show notes. That's a good recommendation, a good place to start. I love it, Doug. Thanks for sending that in. Our next one comes in from Joe. And uh, he's got a problem. He says, I've written in before and loved Jupiter Broadcasting and, of course, Coda Radio. I'm an extroverted individual. I work a typical nine-to-five job in IT, and I've worked it before, and I've found that uh, I have a passion in DevOps, planning out systems, and I even love digging into some C-sharp. I love web technologies, and I love building C-sharp apps, but I go crazy after four to six hours in a cube or even just staring at a screen. I just need people time. Currently, I'm out there, micro-business thing, doing custom CRM ERP work for my local clients. I love getting the contract, setting up the solutions, but just get emotionally and mentally bogged down sitting at the keyboard for too many days in a row. Am I just not meant for coding? I can build apps successfully. It's just draining. Is there a better role for someone like me? Thanks in advance for doing what you guys do. Joe. Hmm. So the core issue is he can build great applications, but it takes a great toll on him. Like there's a cost. So every great thing he makes, there's this toll that sort of slowly kills his soul. Is he just not cut out for it, Mike, or do you think it's something else? No, I don't think it's that. Lay us your wisdom. Yeah, I don't think it's that. I think he's fine. Um, You know, obviously, I don't know. I think you're fine. I mean, if you're working anywhere with cubicles, that's already a different problem. Have you considered using something like Project Uno and writing C Sharp in an environment that's not like openly hostile to your sanity? I was going to say, like, I wonder if Project Uno is has something here for this. Also, what about something like uh, the Pomodoro or whatever you call it, Pomodoro timer, where you set in some breaks and you like give yourself time, like a system? Yeah, so I, it's, it's great. So I do, I do 25 minutes of coding, then I make a martini, then I do some more coding. <laughs> that does sound great. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, Joe, I would say what you're really looking for is some balance. You know, uh, you got to find some. I, I have the same issue when I'm editing. And the biggest problem is for me, it's like I have the whole timeline of a show in my head and like the narrative and all of it is in there, especially for the ones that are heavily edited. And so it's uh, it's almost impossible to stop because like you lose so much state and it takes so much to get back to that state. But if you habitualize it and you really stick to it, and in some cases you build a system around it, you'll find that you'll also be able to habitualize getting back to that state. It just takes really sticking to it and committing to it. This uh, this uh, uh, crazy old man on Twitter tweeted me, at uh, Dumanuko, Dumanoko, Dum, Dum, Dumco. I'm not sure. I've never, I've never. Oh, this sounds like some alcoholic living in the jungle, Yoda style. Yeah. Who's this? He says, uh, at Chris Lass, what is the name of that fancy email app you've mentioned on Coda Radio before? 
And uh, so I tweeted him back and said, what you're thinking of is MailSpring. It's an Electron-based app. It has that cool read notification support. And of course, it's Electron, so it works on Linux and, and all the other ones as well. So that was MailSpring. You wrote back and said, well, the guy that works for Thunderbird has just convinced me to use Thunderbird. <clears throat> Apparently, he's doing his job. Good job, Ryan. Yes. Yes. Good job, Ryan. So I want to throw a wrench in the works and tell you about one that I switched to over the weekend. I'm not 100% on it because it's only for iOS, or I guess if you have a Mac. Um, but I, I because I'm trying to triage a certain inbox while I'm on mobile, that works for me. But stick with me for a second. It's called Spark, and it offers like one of those smart inboxes. So people that have emailed you directly versus like social newsletters and you know the things that like Google has started to do but this is not a Google it's a it's a native client it lets you snooze emails so you can like say oh just I'll swipe it off to the side and say you know remind me tomorrow at 8 a.m. Um, but here's the reason why I'm trying it is it's basically Google Docs for email it has real-time collaborative email editing I can share an email with somebody else, and then they also will get all of the updates in that thread. So I might be emailing back and forth, say, with a guest, but I can have Angela get a copy of the entire conversation thread. She can leave comments in there that never show up in the email, but I see them in like a Google, just like Google Docs, where you can have a chat. And then we can both be typing in there. We get different colored uh, names, badges as you're typing. You can see where each person is at. You can share drafts. So one person can modify it, and it's all in my inbox. Plus, it unifies the inboxes so I can have multiple inboxes in there, so I can have multiple shows in there. Uh, and it has different signatures for different kinds of emails, which is nice. And you just kind of swipe through them. It's got what it calls smart notifications, which uh, don't really work for me, but it's supposed to only alert you for important emails. That's really just emails that are sent directly to you, which I get tons of. Um, and uh, it also integrates in with like Dropbox and Google Docs, so I can easily just add like a Google spreadsheet to an email, which is kind of nice when you're on mobile. So Spark, uh, sparkmailapp.com. I'll have a link in the show notes, uh, coder.show slash 317 if you want to try it. Now, it's a total curveball because they don't have uh, a Linux client, they don't have a Windows client, and they don't have a web client. So it's a bit of a curveball solution. But if you just are looking for something on iOS or the Mac or the iPad, which is iOS, um, yeah, it's decent. It seems pretty decent so far. I'm not sure I'm going to stick with it because of the lack of a desktop client. So in the meantime, I'm continuing just to use Spark on the desktop. And I've got like six mail clients, or I'm sorry, mail accounts in Spark that I'm checking mail for all the time. And I like it. It, it, it does the gerb, you know what I mean? It, it works well enough. So check it out. Spark. It's at, uh, I think, Spark app. One, oh, one other thing. One other thing I like about it is uh, I think it's pretty neat that you can link emails. So I have an email here from Joe and I'm just reading it. I'm like, you know what? I want to save that encoder. So I can just share a link to, to my bookmark service and and have it ready for the show so I can process it as I'm reading it. So I, I really like that about it. So if you're curious, check it out. It's a pretty good app. It's a Spark. You can, their slogan is love your email again. It's a sparkmailapp.com, which... Uh, Doesn't matter. I'm still going to hate my email. Yeah, I will too. Well, Mr. Dominic, yeah. we have much to get into, including our chat with Jerome. Uh, so let me mention Linux Academy, which is where I'm at right now. Linuxacademy.com slash coders with an S. Yeah, it's great. It's hot. It is so hot here. These Linux Academy folks are, are working in the heat to generate more content than they have ever launched in the history of Linux Academy. July is the month where over 150 courses and challenges and learning activities and new categories are launching at Linux Academy. They're live streaming all week doing giveaways, which might be worth checking out if you'd like to. LinuxAcademy.com slash live for that kind of stuff. It is 
really big. They're getting into security now, uh, updates to AWS courses, Azure, and of course the Linux Essentials. Because if it runs Linux or Linux runs on it, Linux Academy has courseware, comprehensive study guides, downloadable audio, and like notebooks that you can keep on your machine and keep track of and read offline if for some reason there's an internet apocalypse or Maybe you're drop, dropping packets like like I am today. I mean, you never know when you just want something offline. Plus, they'll spin up virtual service for you as part of the courseware, and they're there to answer your questions. They have real human beings, instructors, answer your questions when you get stuck. And that is a massive feature, because can you imagine? Think about that from a business perspective, how they do that. They've got topic experts that are in there creating courseware and answering your questions all the time. For the platforms that make your resume look good and help you get a new job, or help you get trained up in a new area. They have they have content tracks too if you need to if you need to switch tracks in the career. So great. Linuxacademy.com slash coders. Go there to support the show and sign up for a free seven day trial. That's Linuxacademy.com slash coders. Okay. So we have Jerome join us here in just a moment. He is from platform.uno. We talked about Uno recently. It is so cool. It is something that's been in the works for a while, and it allows you to build native apps for mobile and the web using XAML and C Sharp. It has a cool online playground, and it appears to have a very bright future. Jerome, welcome to the show. And for folks that didn't hear last week's episode or want to hear it from the horse's mouth themselves, could you tell us a little bit about Uno? So uh, Uno is uh, something that that uh, my company and I have been working on for about four years now, uh, which is a uh, an implementation of UWP uh, on iOS and Android. And uh, quite recently, we've been trying out to uh, to make it run on WebAssembly as well. So uh, it's basically taking something that runs on UWP, compiled with uh, C Sharp, and uh, cross-compile it to uh, iOS, Android using Xamarin, and uh, using Mono uh, on WebAssembly and run it in the browser. Awesome. So wow. Jerome, is it, is it fair to say that WebAssembly is the API you're targeting as the developer? Uh, not really. No, the, what we're targeting is basically <laughs> it, it, it's it's basically targeting mono, uh, and most of the most of the the code that's been running it's is targeting uh, .NET as a whole. And there's you know let's say just a, a hole to get to uh, uh, to get to JavaScript and to the DOM to be able to draw something on the screen uh, you know on the page itself. Okay. Uh, so so this is actually a great thing. I mean, Chris, do you mind if I jump right into it? Absolutely, go for it. So I am a Linux user, former Mac guy, who loves C-sharp. Why? Because I'm a sick bastard, Jerome. I have a problem. I need <laughs> That's not help. a problem to love C-sharp, I mean. No, I, I need your help, though, because I'm very confused. Sure. So I have .NET proper on Windows, right? I have .NET Core, which is what I'm using for my command line scripts. And then I have something called .NET Standard. Where is where is uh, is uh, your project in? What are you targeting in relation to that? How do, how does it work? It's none of the three. So <laughs> that, that's the that's again the always wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm batting a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so so .NET Desktop is what Microsoft has been calling uh, just .NET for for let's say early early two thousand. So it's something that's been there for quite a while. Uh, Microsoft rebooted a bit of things and then did .NET Core with uh, you know, kind of rethinking a little bit of, of the internals of uh, of .NET, especially removing things that were legacy or like the you know, uh, app domains and, and cross-app domains things that, that 
may not be interesting for interesting for the the uh, server side of, of things like uh, ASP.NET Core. Um, and then there is .NET standard in the middle, which is just basically a bridge between the two. If I try to make it you know uh, leveled, uh, but .NET standard is just an API. It's just an API definition. It's not an implementation. And what makes it interesting is that that .NET standard set of API definitions also works on Mono. Uh, so it works on uh, Xamarin iOS, Xamarin Android, and it happens also to work on Mono WebAssembly. So it's just the same code. Uh, okay. But yeah, so it's no, just it's just a, a set of a set of API. So for instance, uh, it will allow you to use a system.io.file.open to be able to run it uh, in the same way on all platforms. Uh, and, and, and .NET Standard just defines all of those APIs. Right. Sometimes they're not implemented. So for instance, I think the, the uh, registry APIs are there, uh, but they don't make sense on WebAssembly. Neither they do on, on iOS nor, nor Android or Linux for that matter, uh, but they're there. So it's, it allows to compile and target for, for .NET Standard, uh, have a single binary that runs all across all those platforms at once. Okay. So I think this is a, a great area of confusion for our listeners, or, or at least for me personally. And let's be honest, that's what really matters here. .NET standard is not one format, right? It's just a standard that all like Mono and a bunch of other things conform to. Is that a fair? It really is. It it really is. It's it's okay. it's a set of definitions. You could say, uh, f like uh, in the same way, HTML five is uh, is the same is the same definition for all browsers, in a way. That makes a ton of sense. Okay, that, that is, so it's like almost like an ECMA standard, sort of. I know it's not yes. actually an ECMA standard, but what? Um, so, I, and, and I'll be honest, Jerome, I don't already know the answer to the question. When you compile to WebAssembly for uh, for HTML5 and for your JavaScript, how does that work? Uh, so, it, it, so that's the thing. It's just for for Mono, most of WebAssembly is not is not visible at all, unless you're doing you know, low level stuff for debugging inside of Mono. You don't see it, and, and that that what makes it uh, so interesting in terms of, of targeting the web and and why we we pushing Uno a lot in that direction. Uh, but basically, you're getting Visual Studio Visual Studio Code uh, on whichever platform you want. Um, you add a new get package to your .NET, .NET, uh, .NET project, which can be a .NET Core app or a .NET standard targeting-ish uh, application. Uh, and then when you press F5, it just builds uh, your DLLs and then takes those DLLs and, and package them into a, uh, an, a, a file structure that resembles a website. Uh, it has a, uh, some bunch, a bunch of JS files and then an, an index.html file. Just serve that, and then the application runs. That's pretty much what it is. So there's wow. no WebAssembly per se in that package. You don't see it that much. Okay. So, but that, but that's, I mean, you make it sound like the easiest thing in the world. But going from XAML to a HTML5 website, I mean, that's how are yeah, really? how are you, how, how are you accomplishing that? that? I mean, I've used XAML for native Windows development, and I'm uh, I'm a pretty big believer in WebAssembly and HTML5, and that the web is the future. And but I love I mean I love Uno. I'm writing something in Uno right now. I have no idea how you accomplish this. Okay, like that, so, that, that there are like multiple levels to that question, to but yes. <laughs> so, so what I what I've just explained to you is the basic workflow in terms of getting something that's in the C sharp code. Uh, let's say just a console application, and that that's um, you, we have uh, something that's called the Uno Wasm Bootstrap, which is basically a simple NuGet package that you put inside your project, and then 
it's there's no Uno in there, uh, no, no UI, no XAML. It's just taking a console application that does console the write line, and it just outputs the to the uh, the JavaScript console. That's it. That's what it does. Uh, then up that layer, we put a lot of stuff that we've been that we've been building on iOS and Android for for Xamarin, which is uh, implementing all the XAML-y things uh, like dependency object grids, stack panels, and things like that. All the UI elements that make for a, a XAML UI. Um, and those are, uh, and that, that's cross-platform at that point. Uh, it's basically taking all those XAML concepts and uh, either uh, transforming the XML format of the layout uh, to a C-sharp code. Uh, and that C-sharp code is just calling into APIs that come from the UWP contract. So for instance, uh, you have a stack panel, which resembles a stack layout in, uh, in um, uh, it can be an Android layout or things like that, uh, the, a grid control, an image, and things like that. So basically we're taking all this, which is, is a UWP uh, UI definition in terms of um, object model, and then we're translating and transpiling, depending on the context, uh, into, uh, let's say, a UI view for iOS, uh, a view group for Android, and it and divs into uh, into the uh, the WebAssembly space. Uh, so it's basically for, for HTML. It, we're not taking HTML as a... So you could take... The XAML is taken and just mashed into something that resemble a stack of divs styled and... Uh, and input controls. That's pretty much what it is. And then it looks like what you see when you're when you're running the playground, for instance. No, that's, that sounds amazing. So, Sharam, who who is your target developer for this? Um, and let me give you a few uh, multiple choice here. Is it your web developer looking to use C sharp? Is it your like me iOS developer who's recently found you know Tux as our Lord and Savior? Uh, making a joke, obviously. Is it your .NET developer trying to run their code on multiple platform? Who who is it that you're you're thinking is your target developer? So that that's the uh, that's a very big question, and the the problem is that you know when we when we were developing for iOS and Android specifically, when Wasm wasn't there, you know, our target was very easy. It was uh, it was uh, iOS and Android developers, and uh, and and just having Windows developers just target. All, all three platforms at once. So just develop it once and then you got everything that you want. But then there's the WebAssembly. Sure. There was the WebAssembly part. And then it gets a little bit difficult because in there you have a lot of technical crowds there. You have the people that are developing websites, the people that do React, the people that do uh, any kind of, uh, of JavaScript, uh, new SPA frameworks that you have on the web, uh, the web end. And then you have uh, backend developers that do uh, ASP.NET and, and, uh, and just browser uh, you know backend development that want to do they want to have their code reused on the on the client and then then you have civilite developers as well that 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 see a lot of interest in in the fact that Microsoft kind of abandoned them uh, and they've invested a lot in that in that space and they have no solution for for reusing all that so so that that makes a lot of interest there uh, and then there you have so all the Jerome, WPF developers <laughs> Jerome you're you, I mean I wasn't going to ask but you You've tempted me. <laughs> I mean, I have done years of Xamarin development. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to the show, but I, I love the Objective-C programming language. To me, Project Uno is a better version of Xamarin. I know it ties into Xamarin, but the API... So you, you mean Xamarin Forms? I mean Xamarin Forms in particular, yes. Okay. It, it seems like 
you know, if I could wave a wand and tell Microsoft, rewrite Xamarin Forms, it would be Project Uno. Is that something you had in mind at the beginning, or, or did that just kind of happen? It's been it's been a lot of things. So we didn't know exactly where where to go for that uh, uh, at the beginning. And it, what made it what what made all this clear is that uh, it has to happen. It has to be you know UWP is very interesting and and the the clear the the defining factor for 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 Uno in general and especially especially XAML is that Microsoft has been spending a lot of time with the failed attempt with with Windows Phone uh, yes. and 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 getting from small screen to very very large screen and they, they've invested so much in terms of defining XAML and the, the 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 API contracts for let's say focus down to touch then to animations and things like that and. All those frameworks that, you know, especially Xamarin Forms and the others that are there in that regard, they don't try to address all those concerns at once. And the UWP APIs does that. And that's what made it very interesting for us to, to target that. So we wish Microsoft would, would, would push a little more in that, in that direction, which is, you know, I don't, I don't know. We, I'm, I'm not in the secret of gods in, in that regard. So let's say that's what we wanted to have. We expected Microsoft to do it, and they didn't. So we're doing it. That's basically what ha- what's happening. Right. Mm. I mean, J- Jerome, you're you're very diplomatic. Um, permit me to be a little uh, more forceful than you. You've effectively <laughs> done Xamarin Forms correctly. Oh well, <laughs> I didn't say it, but yeah, it's it. We're, we're, we've been trying to do that, and and at the beginning, uh, at the start of, of, of Uno, Xamarin Forms didn't exist as well, uh, and we we tried to do it. Uh, and, and saw the two directions and, and pondering whether Xamarin Form would be interesting for us and, and, or not. And we were doing a lot of Windows at the time, so uh, and UWP. So we didn't want to, to have uh, the developers that were running, uh, that were in, in, at Inventive, uh, our, my company, to just, just relearn everything. So it, right, it right. made sense for us to go that route. No, yeah. And I mean, your, your reasons seem perfectly practical, perfectly reasonable to me. Um, Chris, do you have anything? Yeah, well, I wouldn't mind shifting gears just for a minute and talking a little bit about the playground because that seems like a massive undertaking just in itself, Jerome. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came to be? And it seems like a risky move to put that much effort into something like like a like an online editor that's so feature complete, but yet you guys nailed it. What's the story behind that? The basic idea for for that playground was to be able to just show off and let the developers do what they want to do and, and try out the features that are available without us just showing a static a static set of features uh, that wouldn't be interesting. Uh, so we we tried a few things with uh, with Mono. Uh, uh, it just it's just a bit of history that that that's kind of amazing at that in that in that sense. I, I took a look at uh, Mono and Miguel de Casa was talking about that in, in in January of this year, and he said, "Well, we're working on a few things, and uh, there's two branch you can do uh, Winter uh, AOT stuff, but it's not working that much. And there's a bit of work that's done by uh, Rodrigo Cumpera, and uh, you know it was interesting, but not that much of, of a usable thing." Uh, Nothing happens for about three months. And then in March, I try again. And then a lot of things work. I mean, when I'm, I'm saying a lot of things, it's just all of it 
worked. Uh, there was a GC. There was you yeah, could put in anything in there, like uh, weak references and 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 you know, all the funky stuff that you can find in in the mono runtime, and, and it all worked. So we kept adding, we kept adding adding stuff to the runtime to see what happens, and said. Well, why not take all the code that comes from iOS and just put it on, on WebAssembly? And then we're pushing and pushing, and then most of it's working. So, well, not let, 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 let's see how far we can go. And then we mm. go to, let's say, why, why not take Roslyn and take and put it inside? And at this point, then they hit the roadblock that, that wouldn't make it work uh, as they wanted. You know, the idea was to take the uh, C-sharp code for a view model or something like that and just put it in the browser and, 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 and compile it and then use the compiled code inside of the browser and run it as part of the, the rest of the shell, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm, I'm, is it, is, does Rosling talk to you guys? Oh yeah, I don't no, think Roslyn, have we talked uh, to them? Web, web compiler for C sharp. Yeah, it, it, no. Um, I, Did we on the show or over email? Okay, so, <laughs> so I don't remember that at all. So Roslyn is basically the C sharp compiler. Uh, it's just that uh, Microsoft has been working a lot on this, it, and it, it basically it's a it's a composable compiler, so you can take pieces of it and and do whatever you want with it. And it's basically, you can call in APIs. Uh, it's a C sharp library. Um, it runs big, in very VS big. code on Linux, Chris. Exactly. Uh, well, there you go. And you can take that code and compile it to run inside of the browser. So you can basically right. have a bunch of text, which is C sharp, and have the, the browser run the Roslyn code and compile it to an assembly that's loaded up in memory inside of the browser and execute it. So is that the, the long answer then to the question of because you could? Is that really the answer there? Is because you could, you decided to create the playground? Yeah, it's basically what it is. It's just we could and we, 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 we created it. So we stopped at just being able to compile C-sharp code to just put it as some JSON context at the, at the bottom. And then, uh, and then, then you have the, the browser and, and, the, uh, and the playground that uh, allows you to put some XAML and just play with it. So we have a team of designers and integrators that is able to right. make it pretty and, uh, and usable. Uh, but that's, that's the story there. It's just because we could, really. <laughs> I love it. I really only got one last question, Mike, so go ahead. Because my last question, I mean, I just have like one more and I'm done. Okay, so j just on the on the topic of the Roslyn compiler, I've been watching it for years now, and I've seen it mature from something that was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a side project over at Microsoft to uh, really a main compiler, right? If you're running VS Code on Linux, you're running the Roslyn compiler. Hmm. Do, yes. Do you, I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, and you could just decline to answer you know, the Fifth Amendment and all that. <laughs> don't, don't you see the Roslyn compiler as the future? I mean, my, my big bet is that I can compile C-sharp into WebAssembly via Roslyn going forward. Don't, don't, don't you see that as something that could happen or no? Uh, it's, it's, it, so not really, because the Roslyn compiler is not made for that. It's, it's made okay. to produce IL code. Uh, and the, the runtime is able to do the uh, taking that IL code and, and, and put it down to WebAssembly. Uh, and, and even that context, it's, it's a bit different because in, in terms of WebAssembly, it's not possible at all. It's just the AOT part of it. Uh, so there's two modes for that. So no, not really. Um, it's, it's part of the whole solution. Uh, but producing WebAssembly uh, directly, I don't, probably someone's going to do it at some point. Uh, but don't forget, there's LLVM uh, in the middle, and that part is right. very, maybe, maybe very not complex. directly. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I'm oversimplifying the architecture. But let's say from Roslyn to IR code to some other compiler into WebAssembly is yeah, what, that, what that, I'm thinking. 
Yeah, so that, that's that's what Microsoft is is doing with Miguel de Casa and uh, and the Mono team. That that's what they're doing. They're taking. See, I blame Miguel for everything, so I don't even know. Okay, well, I wouldn't mind just asking, um, how is this financially possible for you? Like, is that what is the long term runway there for sustainability? Well, the basic idea is that we've been doing that for four years, uh, five years now, maybe. It's it just it wasn't called Uno at the time, but it's we've basically we're basically a service company, so we're building application providers, and uh, our way to do is basically just build once and have uh, you know four applications now four applications uh, running uh, for the price of of, of one, uh, pretty much uh, because there's so much that that can be reused. So the point is for us just continue doing uh, you know consulting work and and uh, and. And, and build applications for our customers, and uh, and as well now that Uno is uh, is public, do uh, um, do professional services on it. So you want to you want to be able to develop an application on uh, using Uno, and there's something that doesn't work for you, then we're going to help you at, uh, at at some price. Okay, that makes so much sense, and how great that you've it's uh, you know putting together a lot of stuff you've been using for years to service existing customers. So it I can totally see how that is a sustainable project for you guys, and. And putting it under that Uno brand and, you know, setting up all of the Uno stuff around it has is really, I think, brought a lot of attention to it. So, Jerome, thank you for coming on the show. You know, this came on our radar a little bit ago and we started talking about it. So it was great to chat with you and get the, the official word on some of the stuff and clear up some things and all of that. So really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, before we go any further, I want to thank DigitalOcean, do.co slash coder. No S, just do.co slash coder. And get it right, because when you go there, you can sign up with a new account and get a $100 credit at DigitalOcean. Now, I really want to emphasize that because in the past, we were offering a $10 credit, and that was more than you needed to get by for two months on DigitalOcean without having to pay a dime. With a $100 credit, you can really build some impressive systems. Check out do.co slash coder. Industry-leading price to performance. All SSDs for every system you deploy. A gorgeous dashboard that's easy to understand and extremely powerful. Cloud firewalls that you can set rules to block traffic at the edge level. 99.99% uptime. One-click deployment of entire application stacks. And... Also, one-click deployments of like a base Ubuntu LTS with Docker ready to just get going with anything you want or build the whole thing up from scratch. They even offer free BSDs. All the BSDs, well, really just the free BSD. They have global data centers, 40 gigabit connections coming into those hypervisors, and a really easy to use, straightforward, simple, and well-documented API. And then you stack that on top of tons of great documentation, tutorials, and a really active community. And they have team accounts as well, which makes it great when you're in a project or, in my case, working with the community. Just love all of it. And they now have these mix and match droplets where you can mix and match the resources as your application needs. I'm currently taking advantage of one of their optimized CPU droplets that have these excessively powerful CPUs with consistent and reliable performance that runs my re-encoding scripts for our PeerTube instance that we're working on. It's just... It's the best because those I've I have a benchmark of that script that I use. I use it on my laptop. I, I use it on my workstation. I've used it on encoding boxes at the studio. And now I'm using it on a DigitalOcean droplet to just see the performance. And you combine that with those SSDs, and then they're crazy fast internet connections. It's so great. It's so great. And then that dashboard just makes it perfect. So go try it out and see what I've been talking about. Do.co/coder. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. They also, DigitalOcean, just put out one of their currents, which they do these every quarter now. 
and it's a report on developer cloud trends that they see by looking at their own internal metrics. Check this out, Mike. This is a, this is an interesting one. Containers, they say, are reaching a tipping point with 49% of developers now using them on DigitalOcean. Almost half of all DigitalOcean customers are using containers on their system. That's a pretty big number. I bet most of those are Docker for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Serverless computing is still in a much earlier stage of adoption with nearly half of developers failing to clearly understand what it is. <laughs> Boom! I didn't read that last sentence, and so that totally caught me by surprise. Uh, um, I did not expect that uh, at all. And boot camp participants feel more prepared for the workforce than college graduates now. And employers seem to be warming up to boot camp graduates. The majority of hiring managers say they still make no distinction between boot camp versus college graduates. Bullshit. 48% have not filled any position with uh, 48% have not filled any position with a bootcap graduate in recent years. Almost half of the employers they surveyed had not hired people out of boot camps, but yet they say they don't. That's uh, anyways. Oh, yeah. Uh, people that, what are they running inside those containers? They gave us numbers on that 57% on JavaScript, 46% on Python, 36 on PHP. And then Go coming in at a solid 28%. Ruby all the way down at 13%. Yeah, but where is Rust? I mean, isn't that all that matters? <laughs> well, Rust is what's running all the stuff that's running that stuff. <laughs> See, that's well, at least it will be one day, I think. I just like these. I, you know, it's really fascinating because DigitalOcean's gotten to the size where they can do these surveys and uh, actually give us some interesting data. And then they, they, really, they really make it look good, too. So Kubernetes no, I think uh, winning good. the orchestration platform, Do Docker Swarm, followed by OpenShift by Red Hat. Yeah, and I think Dio's customers tend to be more forward-leaning tech, uh, technology-wise. So it, it's a good trend of where the average yeah. is going to go in, say, six months. Yeah, a lot of lukewarm responses in this survey to serverless. Um, but I tell you, I saw a really interesting use case for serverless this last weekend. We covered it on Linux Action News 61. There is a new fork of Copperhead OS called Rattlesnake OS, and it's using Lambda to spin up people's own update instances, build the version, the new version of the Android OS, and then do an OW update from the from S3 to people's phones. So it's a it's a it's an automatic update system that is completely free of the project's infrastructure. And it's it's a script run by the user that's interfacing with Lambda to build instances to do these updates and then transfer data to S3 and spin it all down. It's fascinating. It, it, I, I did a much better job explaining it in Linux Action News, but it is fascinating. Yeah, well, that, that's a very cool, cool use. I mean, for me, so far, I'm just using them for straight-up data processing, right? Input-output kind of work. Yeah. Um, but it, it's working great, right? And, uh, yeah. All right. Well, before we go, I wanted just one more email to wrap it up. Uh, we got an email in from Alex, and he said, I was listening to episode 315, Chicken Farmers, and your thoughts about tribalism in the technology industry and social media. It reminded me about an article about echo chambers. Uh, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes because it's a long, weird URL. And it really kind of, it takes a hard, like, uh, it's a, it takes a hard look at politics. So, it, But if you remove, like, the, ref the references to Rush Limbaugh and political leanings and replace them with... Linux distros or technology stacks, it totally holds up. Um, so I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes because it's really long. There was, I think, one, did I, oh yeah, here's one choice 
uh, poll quote that I'll tease you guys with to go read the rest. Uh, here's a definition of an echo chamber is a social structure from which other relevant voices have been actively discredited where a bubble merely omits where a social bubble merely omits contrary views. An echo chamber brings its members to actively distrust outsiders. Um, voices are not heard in echo chambers. Other voices are actively undermined. The way to break into an echo chamber is not to wave the facts in the faces of its members. It is to attack the echo chamber at its root and then repair the broken trust. Anyways, it's very intense, but Alex sent this into the show and he said, uh, after I read this, I kind of gave up on social media. I even pulled out of the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group. I just, uh, after I read this, I realized there is no escaping the echo chamber. Uh, in fact, the article asserts that escaping an echo chamber is actually harder than, than breaking out of an, uh, out of an occult. Uh, in fact, uh, that's the headline. Escape the echo chamber because it's harder than escaping a cult. That's a, that's a, it entraps you just like a cult too, it argues. There you go, Mr. Dominic. This kind of a, it's a heady article, but I feel like it would give some people, the reason why I mention it is it would give people peace. If you're, if you're trying to struggle to understand why sometimes you see something differently than other people, no matter what facts come in, right. doesn't matter if it's a political thing or a technology thing, that could give you some peace. So check well, that out. Well, and if you've ever listened to an Apple podcast and uh, wondered why some people get featured and there's no, that would be why. Oh, I call oh, oh, Mr. Dominic, uh, share with the good people some places they can find you during the week. Uh, at Poti- I'm not kidding. At Dumanuko. <laughs> Yeah, and follow me. I'm at Chris LAS. The whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Coder.show slash subscribe for links to your favorite podcast player to get this show every single week. Thanks so much for being here, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>